entire book of Malachi. Now, uh, before you get nervous and think, you know, are we going to make it out before the snow hits tonight? We will. Um, but what's going to be different is it's going to be more of a Bible study today. And so I will actually ask you all some questions and feel free to respond back. And let's have some discussion here uh, this morning. And um, you might be asking, well, why Malachi? Well, uh, when I was done reading through the Bible this year, I, I spent about a month reading through Malachi every single day because I, I, I thought that's where the Lord was going to lead our church to next uh, for our next series. And um, so once we finish our Advent series and then once we finish First Peter, uh, which you're wondering, like, well, when are we ever going to do that? Because it's been about a month since we've been in First Peter. We'll eventually get to Malachi. So you all can consider yourselves ahead of the schedule. And um, and you'll get a bit of a preview about some of the things that we're going to see in the book of Malachi once we finish First Peter. If you're completely confused, you know what? Just come every Sunday and it'll hopefully make sense. Um, but we'll we'll be reading. Uh, we won't read the entire book. But in case you were wondering how long it takes, it takes about 12 to 15 minutes to read the whole book. So um, I'd encourage you, if you don't have a reading plan for the new year, uh, maybe what you could do is you could read the book of Malachi every day in anticipation for um, for our series in the book of Malachi. So, but I'm going to read for us starting in verse one and I'll read on down through verse five and then we'll just begin to kind of work our way through it uh, section by section and looking at some of kind of the major thrust of each section. Um, let's go ahead and uh, Malachi chapter one, verse one. God's word says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, Lord, we thank you for this day that you've blessed us with. Father, we thank you for the rain and the snow. Uh, we pray that uh, it, you would ease the drought that we have found ourselves in. And so we thank you for your blessings upon us. And Lord, we pray that your blessing now would be upon this time that we have in your word. And uh, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in the discussion that we have working through the book of Malachi together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you ever heard of the 10,000-hour uh, rule? Uh, it's a rule where if you dedicate 10,000 hours doing something, some event, some skill, then you become confident in it, competent in it. Overnight success is incredibly rare, right? Especially when you look at your lives. How often did overnight success or something extraordinary happen? Uh, you look at your lives and, uh, or you look at the lives of successful business people or successful athletes. Did they just wake up with that ability? Most likely not, right? They spent hour after hour, discipline after discipline, uh, 
pouring in hours of their time to be competent and to be successful in the skill that God had given them. Uh, you know, consider those whose success maybe you admire. Maybe it's an athlete. Maybe it's a writer. Maybe it's a musician. You know, how might you describe those people? What are some characteristics that would come about uh, from, from those people who would be successful athletes, maybe, or successful writers or successful musicians? What are some things that come to mind? Commitment, right? Yeah, they're committed to the task, whether it be an athlete, right? Um, committed to staying in shape, committed to, uh, to practice. Uh, you don't just wake up and become an NFL athlete overnight or an MLB athlete overnight, right? Uh, it takes commitment. What else might describe uh, their lives? Consistency, yeah. It's often said, uh, you know, I, I love baseball, um, and it's often said that uh, the best baseball players are those who, who are consistently failing, but they do it the best, right? When you think about, uh, when you think about what makes a good batting average in the, the Major League Baseball, that's 300. That's 30% of the time they are successful. That means what? 70% of the time they're failing, but they're consistent in, in knowing how to overcome that, that failure. So when you think of people who are successful in life in the world's eyes, you think of consistency, you think of commitment, you think of dedication, right? Now let's flip that on ourselves. And let's think about how would you describe, this is, this is the, you don't have to answer this question right here. Uh, it's more of a rhetorical question. How would you describe your worship and your devotion to the Lord? Would you give your worship and your devotion to the Lord God the same objectives that you uh, would use to describe a successful athlete or a successful business person? Consistent commitment, dedication. Are those things that you would use to describe your own worship of the one true God? So given the pervasiveness of sin and the hardness of human hearts, in our hearts, it's not surprising that as we come to the book of Malachi, the Israelites really lacked devotion and they lacked passion for the Lord in the time of Malachi. God had been faithful over and over and over again to the people of Israel. He'd been faithful to his promises to them. He had redeemed them from Egypt. He had led them through the desert. He led them into the promised land and they conquered their enemies. But what was their response to his faithfulness. It was sinfulness. It was rebellion. And that led them into uh, that led them to being conquered by their foreign enemies. And then they were led off again into exile. And now as we come to the book of Malachi, they are coming back from a second sort of exodus. They're coming back from the exile, the Babylonian captivity. And God had led them back to their own homeland and given them back their place their home, and yet what do we find them doing? They offer him a worthless worship. And it's on this Old Testament note, it's on this note, this note of a worthless worship that the Old Testament comes to a close. So Malachi, the final book in the Old Testament, it, it speaks extensively about God and, and it speaks about how his people should worship him. Or we could say perhaps how we shouldn't worship him. While the people that Malachi wrote to may have been free from 
pagan idolatry or heretical doctrine, their worship had grown stale and it had grown lifeless. The word that was delivered to Malachi here in this book, it it was a wake-up call to a people who were lifting up a sort of half-hearted worship. And so Malachi's message all the way back 2,400 years ago is a message that resonates with us today. It should resonate still with the church today. A.W. Tozer put it this way, it is possible to worship God with our lips and not worship God with our hearts. But I want to tell you that if your life doesn't worship God, your lips won't worship God either. So we see there, what we're going to see as we dive into this first chapter here and look at verses 6 through 9 to begin with, is we see how their shallow worship was was diminishing the greatness of their heavenly father. It was trivializing the greatness of their heavenly father. Look with me at verses six through nine. Malachi chapter one, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice. And is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick. Is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God. That he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Well, in verses 6 through 9, what actions of the priests here in particular demonstrated their lack of respect and honor to God? What do you see them doing right now? Yeah, right? So the offerings that they were giving, he's saying they're polluted food. Right? Um, can, can you imagine walking into uh, the, the, the temple area and offering moldy bread to the one true God? Or offering blemished and blind animals in sacrifice? What, what's that representative of that you see going on there? A lack of respect, right? Um, they don't really care. They're not taking seriously the law of God to offer. Uh, acceptable sacrifices to him, right? And, and notice that God, what he's doing here is he's handing down two indictments to the people. What were they? Ultimately, first of all, they showed him no honor and they showed him no fear. So not only did they not honor and fear him, they were despising the name of the one true God. And this despising of God carries with it this idea of this ongoing respect for someone or something, right? It it refers to the act of conveying insignificance on something that is seen as worthless. You see that? The text shows us here that the people did this by offering what to God? Crippled and lame and blind animals. And, And what does God ask them? You see what he asked them? Who would be happy with that? He said, well, what would happen if your governor, if you offered this to your governor, right? 
Uh, can you imagine um, if in our taxes we were offering polluted uh, animals and things like that to the IRS or whatever, right? How would that go over? Would the government really enjoy that? No, right? And he's saying, you're, you're doing that to someone who's far greater than any government. You're doing that to, to someone who's far greater than any ruler in this world. So God asked that rhetorical question, would your governor be happy with this? And the answer, of course, as we all know, is what? No, right? And, and he goes on and, and, and describes what we see. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. You see what God is actually saying there? God is saying, I'd rather you not give me any offering. Right? No sacrifice than a defiled sacrifice. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Why is God's anger kindled against the people here? Yeah, so it's not simply that they're offering these polluted sacrifices. You see that? Those polluted sacrifices are a symptom of something much deeper, something much greater, right? And it's that they're not respecting, they're not honoring the one true God. And so it's not just, you know, God is, is unjust and he's angry. No, no, no. What they're doing here is they are saying that he's not honorable. They're saying that the one true God is not worthy of their worship. And, and so it, it's this lack of respect that the people had towards God that ignites his anger. Why? Because it's minimizing his worth. You see that? When we, if we think about this and applying it to our lives today, when we offer God half-hearted worship or, or, or we just go through the motions of our days, not thinking about how we can make much of Jesus, make much of the one true God, we're actually saying that he is not worth it. We're actually saying he's not honorable of our worship. And so they're minimizing his worth. The greatness of God should drive us to our knees and should cause us to give the absolute best of everything we have in our worship and adoration of Similarly, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a verse that we're familiar with, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or as we saw a couple months ago, as we went through 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, 
Peter writes, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what we see as this applies to us and one of the things we need to be asking in our own lives, are we giving the Lord half-hearted worship? And if so, is that indicative of something that's going on deeper in our own hearts, deeper in our own lives? Are we not viewing the one true God as who he has revealed himself to be? The one who is worthy of all of our worship and the one who is worthy of all of our You know, as you look through uh, the scriptures, you see that the scriptures actually in the New Testament, you see that that we're called to offer up five things to the to God. Five things that we are called to as believers offer up to him. The first one is we're called to offer up our bodies. The second thing uh, that we, we saw that in Romans 12, one and two, the second thing we're called to offer up is our finances. You see that in Philippians 4, 14 through 18. But we also see we're called to offer up our praises. You see that in Hebrews 13. We're called to offer up our works. The work that we do for uh, for the Lord, the work that we do in this life is for Him and not just for man. But we're also called to offer up our witness for the Lord. So in what ways does our worship of God through those five offerings the offering of our bodies, the offering of our finances, the offering of our praise, the offering up of our works, and the offering up of our witness. In what way does our worship of God through these five offerings display God's greatness in our life? Think about that, friends. How can you display God's greatness in your life through your body? How can you display God's greatness in your life through your finances? How can you display God's greatness in your life through your praises of Him? How can you display God's greatness in your life through the works that you do in serving one another? And how can you display the greatness of God in your life through being a witness to him? So what we've seen as we look at this first chapter here is that we've seen that the shallow worship of God trivializes his greatness. Now let's skip to chapter 3 verse 7. And what we're going to see is that shallow worship minimizes God's worth as well. So in the first half of Malachi, God was questioning the quality of their sacrifices. And now what we're going to see is that he's questioning the quantity of their sacrifices. Look with me at, let's start reading in verse 6. So Malachi chapter 3, we'll read verse 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you... O children of Jacob are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. 
and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So upon hearing from God, the Israelites had sort of demanded a roadmap for reconciliation with him. Well, how can we then? We have dishonored you, Lord. How can we honor you now? How can we return to you? But really what we see happening here is their question of how can we return to you, Lord, is half-hearted. It's less than sincere. They weren't really expressing a genuine desire to return to him, but they were denying really, it seems like what they're doing is they were denying that they ever really left in the first place. God, we're still sacrificing to you. We're still giving in one sense to you. You, you, you saw that, right? We saw that in chapter 1. We see that in chapter 3 as well. They, they're continuing to give in some way. They're continuing to sacrifice in some way. But God is challenging them for offering their poor sacrifices, their lack of worship, their idolatry, and their faithlessness. And here, he's, God is getting to the root of the problem. And the heart of the problem is really a problem of the heart. You see that? Specifically, they had misallocated their funds, right? Choosing selfishly to, to keep and use what they had instead of using it to honor God. So you see that the, their giving here is an indication of the state of their hearts. And it's a thermometer for how they were viewing God's word. And let's apply that now to our own lives, friends. Our giving, the way we use the resources, however much or however little they may be, whether it's one zero behind it or a lot of zeros behind it, or if it's zero, our giving is an indication of the state of our heart. It's a thermometer for how we value God's word. So are you giving, are you using your resources that God has given you to demonstrate the value of God's word or the value of your word. It's kind of scary to think about when we just come through Christmas season, right? And we're just bombarded with spending money on things. And don't get me wrong, gifts are wonderful, they're great. I think we can use them uh, as, a, as a great time, you know, especially in the lives of our kids and our grandkids. But what do we teach the coming generations when we spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars upon whatever it might be? The newest, latest gift. But then we show up on a Sunday morning and we say to our kids and our grandkids, here's a dollar for Jesus. Where are we teaching them the value, right? So God is actually telling his people here, notice this. What is he, what is he saying to do to him? Do you see what God is saying to do here? To him. He's saying his people to do what? Try him. To test him. He's actually saying, try me. Test me. If the people would test him financially, he's saying that he would provide protection for them. He would provide protection for those who sought to devour them. And he would meet their physical needs. And he would prosper their reputation among the nations. So friends, trusting God financially demonstrates how worthy we believe God to be. And it reveals the level of our trust in Him. It's the quickest way to understand where somebody's heart is. 
where somebody's heart lies by looking at the way we spend our resources. And so regular giving is a visible display of how we're trusting God on a regular basis. What do you do with with the money, the things that you have been entrusted with? God has blessed us in order to be a blessing to others. So we give the Lord our time, our talents, and our treasures, right? Jim Elliott put it this way, the missionary who, who died on the field in Ecuador. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, God is actually telling us to test him and try him. Now, we need to understand how this verse does not apply to us. There are many prosperity preachers that we see on TV today, right, who say, give me $100 and God will bless it and you'll get $1,000. That's not what is going on here, right? Give me 100 bucks so I can buy my private plane <laughs> and God will give you $1,000. That's not what God is saying. When we use our resources for Him and for His glory, and seeking to serve Him and His kingdom and the advancement of the gospel, He's saying He will provide for us. Doesn't mean extravagantly, but as many of you know, there are times when it seems like at the end of the month, maybe there's no way you think that ends can meet, and then what happens? You get a phone call from somebody, or you get an unexpected check in the mail, or it seems like the government's trying to do that right now, right? Um, but God will provide. So use the resources that God has given you, whether great or small, to prove his honor and worth and just see how God will provide. Let's keep going. Let's turn now to Malachi chapter 4. So we've seen that shallow worship really minimizes the worth of God, the greatness of God. It trivializes his greatness and shallow worship as well. It minimizes his worth. And now we're going to see that shallow worship deserves judgment. We're going to read all of chapter four. It's only six verses. But look with me at Malachi chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise in healing in its, with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will return the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Thus I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So shallow worship now, as we see in those first few verses, deserves judgment. Judah had expected unending blessing because they were God's chosen people. But what they receive here is actually a warning that like an oven, God is going to come and he's going to set all wrongs right, even if that began 
with them. Even if that began with their apathetic worship of him. God is going to set all wrongs to right, even beginning with their shallow worship of himself. They look forward to the day when the Lord would repay the wrongdoing of their enemies. But they did not realize that it would be a day of judgment for themselves too. When the Lord returns, the same conditions apply. The Lord's going to, he's going to exact justice. And it's, it's, it's up to us to be prepared for. The question that we need to ask ourselves today is, are we prepared for the Lord's second coming? Are you ready for his return? And we can be sure of our standing on that day because of what the Lord tells us in verse 2. He says, for you will fear my name. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out uh, leaping like calves from the stall. In other words, those who fear the Lord, those who have their faith, in this son of righteousness, in his son who's been sacrificed for us, Lord Jesus Christ, that it's demonstrated through their faithfulness to God's commands. And these people can look at that day of the Lord's coming with joy in their hearts, for they will be they will be insulated from that impending destruction. And God calls them to remember the law. But let's look at these final two verses here. So God promises judgment upon the shallow worship, but for those who find their hope in the son of righteousness, what's going to happen? Let's look at these final two verses again. He's saying, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These final two verses wrap up the Old Testament. And it's a cliffhanger, right? When you think about that, this was the final word of the Lord in the Old Testament. For 400 years, they held onto those two verses. The prophet ended with a promise of someone who was to come, who was going to herald the coming day of the Lord and warning of a curse if repentance did not have its way in the community, in the family. And so Jesus himself did not have Jesus himself did not have uh, if Jesus himself did not come then to fulfill these words here, then, friends, we would have no hope. But Jesus has made it clear in the New Testament. He's made it clear that this Elijah was who? John the Baptist, right? Who preached a message of what? A message of repentance. A repentance for the people of God. And so from this prophecy forward until his arrival, God was silent. But then he broke that silence when you turn over to Matthew chapter 1, right? And you see the genealogy of Jesus. You see the birth of Christ. And then you see in Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist has prepared the way of the Lord. So in the New Testament, what we see is that the son of righteousness that is promised here in Malachi chapter 4 has come. The Messiah to come has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad, brothers and sisters, that we don't have to hang on 400 years of silence, right? We know that God hasn't ended. He didn't end the Old Testament and end his 
revelation of himself to us there. He has spoken now through his son, Jesus Christ. Instead, what we do today is we look back to Jesus, the Messiah, who has come to redeem us from our sins. And Jesus has declared that he is the light of the world. So they had 400 years of silence. But we see in the New Testament that that silence was broken. That the Son of Righteousness has come. So after Malachi, the prophetic word of God went silent for 400 years. But Malachi had prophesied about a messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah to bring God's kingdom. Centuries later, John the Baptist arrived as that messenger who prepared the way for Jesus. And so that last word of the Old Testament is a curse. It's a reminder of the consequences for our sins. But in the New Testament, one of the first words that we hear from the Lord Jesus Christ is a word of blessing. The one who bears our curse and who brings us blessing. And who calls us to repentance and faith in himself. So friends, as we wrap up this quick, brief overview of Malachi, ask yourself this morning, what sort of worship are you offering to the one true God? As you reflect back, this Sunday is always an interesting Sunday, right? It's the last Sunday of the year, looking forward to the coming of the new year. As you reflect back on this year, what sort of worship have you offered up to the one true God? How might you need to repent of the polluted offerings and idols maybe that you're clinging to? And as you look forward to the new year, may we think of how we can continue to serve and worship the one true God. How we can offer Him the sacrifices that He is due, the worship that He is due. How can you live your life in the coming year as a living sacrifice for the one true God? So the Old Testament ended with a promise of cursing and judgment upon the unrepentant, but also ended with a promise of hope for restoration upon those who were faithful. And now that blessing is found in faith in the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to live a perfect life, who came to die on the cross for our sins, and who rose from the dead, so that we who were living under the curse of judgment upon our sin could have blessing for all eternity. Let's pray. Friends, uh, Father, as we come before you now, I thank you for this time that I've had with my friends here in your word. Lord, to be reminded of the fact that we get to praise you. To be reminded of the fact that we get to worship you. And Lord, what joy and what hope that should bring us in the midst of a world that has been broken and cursed by sin. Father, we thank you that your word to us through Jesus Christ is not a word of condemnation, but a word of blessing for eternal life. Father, as we come into this new year, I pray that we would faithfully worship you, that we would faithfully steward the resources you've given us, and Lord, that you would give us numerous opportunities to share this word of blessing, this good news of the gospel with those in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand?